a lot of brands are still figuring out, should we be doing e-commerce? Yeah, you were supposed to be doing it 15 years ago. Welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 36, and today's guest is Sabir Semerkant. Sabir is a 20-plus year e-commerce revenue growth hacker and founder of Growth by Sabir. Prior to creating growth, Sabir founded and has grown e-commerce channels for brands like The Vitamin Shop, Perry Ellis, Ashley Stewart, Puritan's Pride, and many more. Sabir also hosts a weekly live show, hashtag This Week with Sabir, that is multi-streamed on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, that brings industry experts together to share their expert insights. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sabir Semerkant. Sabir, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's an honor to be here on your show. Well, I really appreciate you uh, making the time. I, I know you're you're busy. I will have to say that you may have the longest LinkedIn page that I have ever seen. You must go <laughs> to great lengths to uh, to work that out. Uh, I obsess about any optimization. So when it comes to <laughs> LinkedIn profile optimization, any opportunity you give me uh, space there, I'm going to figure out how to like best utilize it. Well, you certainly have. That's uh, that's great. So we're recording. Uh, we're in the early part of of May. Um, it's nice to finally be able to say on on one of these shows that we seemingly um, are getting closer and closer to some life of normalcy. How are you and your family doing? Uh, doing well. Uh, I, I think it's uh, uh, you know you know this has become the new normal. So it's almost like you know if a friend asks you to for a coffee and you you know you almost have to think twice. Do you really want to leave your cozy home to go have that coffee, you know, or go to a restaurant to eat something, you know? Yeah, well, hopefully we're going to get back to uh, to something where we all feel confident to do that. Lots of ways, um, because your background is is so vast, lots of ways to, uh, to take this. Um, I like to start the shows getting a tidbit from you. You know, is there something remarkable about you that you would, you know, it's always hard for people to talk about themselves, but is there something remarkable that sets you apart from others that you, you work with? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. <laughs> I rarely talk about myself. I mean, I always talk about uh, the guests I work with and the clients I work with and stuff like that. It's rarely about me. Um, not, I, don't, I wouldn't call it remarkable. I think it's just a personality trait, having empathy, being patient. But when I say that, it, it has to do with um, being patient with people, being patient with process, and, and really taking in going through the experience rather than knowing where you want to land. You know, it's more like going through it, you know, because... The, the deep scars you get on your back is the thing that sets you apart than the people who just talk about things, you know, versus experiencing the 
uh, the journey. And in your first story, you know, we talk about the the first story, uh, where you grew up, oftentimes uh, on the show, um, you know, I'm talking to entrepreneurs and, you know, it turns out that their family had a, a store or they were entrepreneurial also. So they, the guest had some insights of what life might be like that. What's your first story? So my first story, I remember it very clearly. Um, my dad owned a toy store. <laughs> so you, you're talking about being entrepreneurial. Uh, so I, I take a lot of uh, traits from him, uh, and I do miss him. He passed on about 20 years ago uh, when I was young. Uh, I think I remember that toy store. I remember him rewarding me uh, any of the toys in the store or rewarding me with, me with money based on certain tasks I did in the store uh, because it was, it was our family business. It, it was not like he worked there. He owned that uh, toy store. And everybody loved coming to him and talking to him about their kids. And when, when I was in the store, most of the customers, because I was a kid, they would ask me what I would like. And I would give them my preference. And they ended up buying that thing that I, that I brought up in the store. During that time, I also learned, I mean, being a kid, I did not know. I, I just knew how to count. So my dad would ask me to do inventory. Now I know it's called inventory. Back then, I was just counting and I was writing it down on, a, on, on paper. At that time, when I was uh, that young, uh, there were no computers being utilized in businesses. So you would write it down in almost like a ledger entry in a, in a book to say this, this product and this is the count. This is the product, this is the count. And whatever I had counted, my elder brother, who's two years older than me, would recount my count to make sure that the two of us were in sync and we didn't miscount. So I clearly remember that. And, and, and uh, having grown up, uh, I, I started working very young too. Anything that came along, I just never hesitated doing it. You know, I never said no. I always said yes uh, to trying it. Even if I didn't know what I was doing, what, what happened was I ended up learning it very quickly. And and I make uh, making it my own, you know, whatever that process was. You uh, when you when you got to college, you studied uh, computer science. Uh, what was the impetus for that? And you know, that seems seemingly fast forwarding into the career that you've had, and we'll talk about um, that. Probably was a very helpful kind of study to to have. Actually, I have a funny story around getting to decide to become a computer science major in college. When I was young, just like I said, you know, my dad was uh, doing this with, with, with us two brothers at that time. I have a younger brother, but he was much, he's much younger than me. He actually traveled. When he traveled, he asked us, like, he couldn't take everybody. So he, he, he went with my mom and with my younger brother uh, on this vacation. Uh, and we stayed with our uncles and aunts. He said that, well, you cannot go, but what can I bring back for you that, uh, that you guys would like, me for me and my brother? And at that time, we had just learned about computers because computers were making it into homes uh, at that time. So we said, oh, well, we heard from our brother, you know, from our friends that Atari 600 XL is a, is a pretty cool computer to have. Bring us one of those. We would love for you to bring that. So he goes, travels, goes on vacation, comes back. He does not bring Atari 600. He brings back Commodore 64. And at that time, we did not know what a Commodore 64 was. It, in fact, what he had brought us was a brand new computer, brand new model, the latest and greatest. We didn't realize that. We were very angry at him and we're very unhappy with him for have, having bought that. You know, and he bought a bunch of games for us. So we turned it on. We figured it out. We were playing soccer games, Olympics, Pesky Painter, Popeye. There were so many games uh, that came with it. So we played it. And then after we got bored, 
there was a manual that came with the box. So we opened up the manual and said, what is this for? We started reading it and it actually gave us instructions on how to change the background of the screen, how to change the foreground of the screen, how to make the computer make sounds through coding. So as kids, we said, okay, let's, let's tinker, let's play with it. You know? So we started coding this stuff and then we did one of those goofy things. I don't know if you've ever done programming. Uh, you say input, give, tell me your name and you say Mark. Uh, and then it responds back, Mark is whatever. As a kid, you know, I mean, we played around a lot of pranks, a lot of abusive names and stuff like that. So it would say that, and it will keep on printing it on the screen. So it became fun for us. And then, and then we started playing with more coding and figuring it out on our own by just paying attention to a, it was a basic book at that time. And we figured all of that stuff out. And then we came, became very good at it. Uh, I was six. My, my elder brother was like eight or nine years old and ended up that we wrote our first program. It was a piano program. Mind you, we had never played a piano, never owned a piano, but we figured out what the notes were and learned that, and then we put it into the computer. So when you use the keyboard on a computer, it, play, it made same sounds as a piano. And then we wrote our first game. The two of us wrote our first game because by that time we knew how to move things on the screen and stuff like that. It was just basically a, a childhood hobby, basically. Fast forward to college, uh, you know, did very well in high school, uh, went, went to college, and I wanted to become a pre-med student. And so I go and talk to my guidance counselor. The guidance counselor goes like, well, you want to become a doctor? Uh, and in fact, I wanted to become a neurosurgeon, not even a regular doctor, neurosurgeon. Oh, for that, it will be 16 years. I'm like, what do you mean 16 years? I already had 12. You mean I, I need to go to school for another 16? Yeah, it's about another 12 years and then you have to do four years of residency and you know, you know, until before they allow you to cut anybody open. I said, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> the guidance counselor was nice enough to ask, you know, what's your hobby? What's your interest? I said, I, we, I love just working on computers. I've been programming since I was six. She went like, well, we have a computer science program. It's brand new. If you're interested, you could join that and major in computer science. So actually, I, I went through college to literally get a degree for something that I have been doing since childhood. And, and that's how I got my degree. That's amazing. And then so you, you come out of school, you spent quite a bit of time uh, consulting. And I gather that uh, that gave you some perspective of how to interact with, you know, with clients. What was your consulting? What were the verticals that you were involved in there? And initially, I was doing a lot of Windows programming at that time. So I was a hardcore programmer at that time, a hacker. Internet came about and I started getting clients. Uh, so I'm a founding team member of thestreet.com with Jim Kramer from Mad, Mo you know, Mad Money. Uh, I'm a founding team member of that, uh, of that startup. Uh, so I, I did that. From there, I had other opportunities uh, I found I also was a founding team member of Tommy Hilfiger e-commerce at that time. Uh, so this was at the very beginning of internet commercialization. So I'm talking about like mid nineties, you know, and, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And, and what happened was I just became really good at e-commerce businesses and getting them up and running because the clients would see immediate return on their investment. And it was not just a branding exercise. And, and a transition happened when I joined vitamin shop and I was still playing this very tech, hardcore tech role that I, that I would usually play in a very much leadership role. Founder of Vitamin Shop, uh, uh, Jeff Horowitz, uh, figured out that I was not only good at um, the programming side of things, I really had a good knack for 
understanding and optimizing like transaction and the website and stuff like that. Because one of the first things I did was I, I completely replaced the search engine on vitaminshop.com with, with a search engine that I had written, written myself. I had designed it myself. Because at that time, there was no e-commerce search engine. Once, I, once we deployed it, the site went from sub 1% conversion rate to 12% conversion rate wow. after the new search engine was deployed. And, and from there, basically the, the owner of Vitamin Shop said, well, why don't you concentrate on running the business? We'll hire engineers for you to work for you. You can tell them what to do. They'll do it. Your time will be better spent in scaling this business. Well, I said, well, uh, in college, I never took a business class. I never took a marketing class. I don't know what, you know, he goes like, well, I'm going to teach you the vitamin business. You have to pick up a couple of marketing books and stuff to learn, learn from it. Uh, so I became kind of self-taught. And now in this current iteration, most people who know me, they know me as a, as a growth hacker that turns around businesses and stuff. But I, I'm self-taught and I've been doing this now uh, for, for the past 20 years now. We're going to come back to, to growth hacking in a second, but you, since we've been on the, the technology trail here, so, you know, so much of what you've done in your background was technology related. So much of what you do today is helping, you know, folks with technology. How do you deal with clients that have this, you know, we'll, we'll call it the, the shiny object syndrome where they want to have the newest and the best and the greatest, as opposed to sometimes just being focused on the, the nuts and bolts of, of putting a site out that people can shop from. Most of my clients, they, they come through referral for me, right? So somebody in my network recommended me to talk to them. I rarely do any lead generation or anything like that. So my contacts never, rarely to never come cold. So they're already warmed up. And, and when I'm introduced, I'm introduced as a person who would tell you exactly what's wrong with the business. And I'm going to tell you how to fix it. So if, if you're a person who likes shiny things, I'm not the right person for you because I might tell you a very boring thing that you need to do in order to fix your business. The boring thing could be, for example, even though it's not really boring, it's really important, is fixing the operations of the business, for example. It's not sexy. It's not front-facing. The client, the customers don't see a shiny website with flash and with, with, with videos and stuff like that. It's behind the scenes. And it's the heroes that that's the last mile when the consumer gets a great experience or horrible experience. I might tell you something as boring as that, and you should be ready to hear it and ready to make a change in order to improve things. Like it's possible that you may have an amazing marketer on the front end that's doing a, a, an amazing thing, delivering great value, great customers, the ROAS, right? Return on advertising spend, cost per order. Everything is fabulous. But when it comes to product delivery, that company is sucking. You know, it's, it's in a horrible shape. The problem is nothing to do with marketing. It has to do with operations. You need to fix that. So if a person is, is have a shiny, kind of shiny object syndrome, they will start thinking that, oh, I need to do more TikTok videos. I need to do Snapchat. Oh, I need to hire th these Uber mega influencers that to, to improve the business. Well, I, when I go through my audit, I might see it has nothing to do with that. In fact, the CMO is doing a fabulous job on that. The problem is more in customer service. So when people call you, live chat with you or contact you, they're having a horrible experience because you delivered your last mile delivery of your service or product was horrible. That's what needs to be fixed, not the front end. Or it might be the other way around. Through that audit, operations may be doing an amazing job of delivery, but on the front end, we're not delivering the right audience, the right creative, the right ad, the right experience on the website, the
the right experience on the mobile app, even the content you're delivering through YouTube is not on point to your customer, to, to your audience, you're going very broad, for example. And you think that broad, to me, broad is spraying and praying that something great is going to, somebody's going to uh, hit. If you make it more niche and focused, I, I think you can get your point across a lot faster. Our listeners can't see, uh, you and I can see each other. I'm shaking my head up and down. I'm getting a headache from doing so because <laughs> all the things that you're saying, you know, is, is kind of the stuff that I like to preach. You know, it's, it's what I call the basic blocking and tackling. And, you know, you've got to be able to do that before you can do some of the fancy and, and glitzy stuff. And so many businesses just don't pay attention to the details. You know, I had a, a consulting business that I called D Details Interactive. And it came from the fact that people used to say about me, you know, geez, he's, he's paying attention to all these details. Why do they matter? Well, they really do matter, you know, oftentimes in these businesses. So I, I hear you. Again, you've you've had some really neat experiences. Um, I'm guessing many of the listeners will know a business called Vayner Media um, and a fellow named Gary Vaynerchuk. For those two people who don't know that company or Gary, uh, tell us a little bit about that, and more importantly, what was your role there? Sure. So Gary uh, Vaynerchuk, uh, his uh, social media handle in most cases is Gary V. He's a social media icon, an entrepreneur. He's been around. Uh, for a long time. I mean, he started from his uh, family business where he grew it. Uh, I, th I think it was uh, from $3 million to $30 million in, in a very short period of time, primarily through uh, doing these YouTube videos uh, at the time when YouTube was in his infancy. It's like uh, nowadays when somebody talks about uh, Clubhouse, for instance, and, and the kind of success they're having. Uh, YouTube was in its infancy at that time, and, and Gary did a great job of producing content where he was doing wine tasting and wine recommendations and stuff like that for, a, for his family's family business, for his dad's business, basically. And it took off from there really well to the point that uh, when he received a lot of notoriety of getting customers and growing that business through primary use of YouTube and social media. And at that time, the Twitter was coming about and, and Facebook was, was also a baby at that time. And he started utilizing those, uh, those, those platforms. What happened was a lot of brands and people started uh, coming to him and asking him how he, they wanted his formula to be applied to their business because he had found success with it. And from there grew uh, VaynerMedia. And, and that's how uh, to, to bring those kind of services in an agency model from a guy who had never run uh, an agency, never knew anything about agencies. And I think that's, that was a differentiator. His superpower was delivering an amazing solution to grow your business. And, and that's what turned into reality for a lot of businesses that, that uh, came to him to help them in the early stages to be the first uh, ones to break into their category with YouTube, with Twitter, with Facebook, and other social media platforms where they could tell uh, their stories in a very different format that at that time you know, it's like today, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a reference to today. Like if someone walks up to you and talks about cryptocurrencies and investing in blockchain and stuff like that, you're going to look at them cross-eyed. The same thing, the same kind of reactions I have gotten in my, in my past when I, when I talked about e-commerce and people putting down their credit card and purchasing from this thing called website. Uh, and same thing applied to him when he would tell a story and how to make businesses win and grow using social media. So that's his kind of background story. My story overlaps with him 
because the, the space that he took up for co-working, I ended up actually sharing it with him, that, that co-working space. And at that time, VaynerMedia was, I think, six people, five or six people. And then I would interact with, with the OGs of, uh, of VaynerMedia at that time because I was running my own company in that, in that same space. It was uh, uh, Sunshine Suites uh, in Tribeca. Uh, so that's where, that's where we serendipitously met at that time. We became good friends at that time. I would, I would provide some guidance because of my background in e-commerce and stuff like that. They would talk about, you know, and, and this was his very first book that had come out, you know, and he would talk about, the, the, you know, how, how the medium was changing and stuff. It was, you know, we really got along really nicely, you know, just more like peers, not necessarily uh, working for each other. It was just, we were just great peers. And then we went our own separate ways because he outgrew the space and I sold the company. I went and I left. I was at Canon, the camera company. I was consulting for them, roadmapping their business to, to help them with analytics and data and stuff like that. And then helping them roadmap to more growth. Where And I put emphasis on data being important. And I get a call from an, uh, an agent asking me if I would be interested in exploring an opportunity for an agency that's interested in getting into e-commerce. Uh, and at that time, I've been involved in e-commerce since day zero of e-commerce. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know any, any agency that's interested in dealing with e-commerce because it's a very different skill set. It's not, it's not like running paid media or anything like that. It's completely a different skill set. He said, oh, well, there is a small agency. The founder is very innovative and, and really on the edge and he wants to do a lot of great things. I said, who is it and what company? He goes like, Oh, it, the, it's a small agency called VaynerMedia. And at that time, I think they were like 150, 200 people roughly. So he goes, oh, I said, oh, VaynerMedia. I, I know Gary Vee. The, the two of us actually shared office space. A very nice guy. It's interesting. How big is VaynerMedia nowadays? He goes, like, it's 200 people. Well, like, wow, they grew from five, six people to 200. Uh, so I said, yes. It wasn't Gary that told this person to reach out to you then? No, no, this guy just randomly, based uh, on my LinkedIn and uh, my background and stuff, found me. So he reaches out. I said, oh, I know Gary, just tell him I would be interested. He knows me. I would be interested in exploring. And then I went and explored it. And I ended up, what he wanted me to do was um, be the founder of Vayner Commerce, which would be a sister company to Vayner Media. So I, I, I did that. I founded uh, Vayner Commerce and I, for him, and I ran it for four and a half years. And all the services that are being provided through Vayner Commerce is basically uh, all of my brain dumps turned into services, basically into different types of services to grow businesses through e-commerce. That's amazing. Growth hacker, right? You used the word hacker earlier in your conversation. What is a growth hacker? So for me, I have a very different definition of it compared to what, what most people define it as. So most people call a person a growth hacker, somebody who can take a business literally starting at a either from a zero or it, it, may be, it may be a business that's stale at a certain amount, like it's been sitting there for three, four years, five years, or it's a startup and it has not even broken a million bucks, can turn it overnight being maybe three years, turn it into a 50 million, $100 million business. So that's, that's a typical definition of a growth hacker. A lot, of peop- a lot of people nowadays, even though they're not really true, they're not truly a growth hacker, they're more of a marketer. They might know Google ads, they might know Facebook, you know, to run ads on them. They just have to replace the, wor- the word marketer to be growth hacker. And they're not really true growth hackers. They just know how to run a medium, basically. In my case, I, I use that word 
growth from a business standpoint, I, I use the hacker side of it from my technology background. So that's, that's how I use those two words in, in that way uh, to kind of mean growth from a business standpoint, but I utilize my technology background to really speed up that growth aspect of it. So it's a combination of those two things. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Uh, if you, you talked about uh, definition of growth hacker, if I'm one of those folks and I come to you, let's say I've got an idea for a business, you know, I'm doing a million or two, what's the first few things that you look at um, about my business, assuming that it's a product, you know, I'd like to build it into a brand. What do I need to get from you to, to help me grow? The first thing I'm going to look at, I'm not going to even look at your business or your product. I'm going to look at you, you know, because if you're starting in that million or two, I want to know more about you, your personality, your, your tolerance to risk, your tolerance to uh, understanding instruction, right? Or, or do you follow through? Would you be able to? Because the thing is, it's useless hiring someone like me to come in, right? To help you uh, create this roadmap that's going to help you grow this business. But if, you, if you're averse to suggestion and recommendation, if you're averse to working with people, if you're averse to hiring, maybe third party uh, people that I'm going to recommend for you to take on because you don't have the skill set. In, in most cases, when an entrepreneur comes to me, they are really good at one thing. I can identify that one thing. They might be really good at product development. Why? Because they were doing that for Johnson & Johnson for 25 years. So that's their, their focus. They have no clue how to market this product. They have no idea how to talk to the consumer. They don't know how to operate a business accounting, operations, all the things that make the business go, they have no idea because they had all of that infrastructure around them. Or they might be an engineer who is fabulous at creating mobile apps, but they're missing all of the other things uh, from that mix. The very first thing I look at is the makeup of the team or the person that I'm talking to, to see what are the gaps in, in that person or the team the, or the initial team or the small team that they have it might be two, three people. It might be five people. What's missing from it? Once I identify that, then when I start asking questions, it's possible that some uh, team member might be pretending to play, play that role. They have no business doing it, right? They have no business, no background, no experience. It, it's just that when they did eeny, meeny, miny, mo, mo was responsible for marketing. And, and the mo never had any marketing background, doesn't know anything about marketing is trying to figure out and try to do his job, you know? And, and that's, the, that, that's the first thing I look at. Number two is if you've had a million dollars in sales or $2 million, to me, it's a lot of data. I, I almost ignore the dollar amount. I look at the data. Was it 1,000 orders? Was it 10,000 orders? Was it 500 customers? How many customers uh, came back and purchased again if it's a replenishable business, right? Do you make a product that's a soap? You know, people run out of soap. So did they come back and buy another soap from you? If the answer is yes, great. Then it means that it's a good product people have, right? That they are trying to sell. Those are the kinds of things that I look at. Then, then there are ancillary things. All the mediums you play on, your website, Shopify, Amazon, Facebook, and so on and so forth. 
I would look at and see how you present yourself. Do you think that every time you have to spend money in order to get a sale, right? It's completely transactional business, right? So that you would keep on spending money to keep on getting sales. If the answer is, yes, it is, then you really did not work on your brand at all. You have, there is no brand equity. If I change the logo with another logo, nobody cares. As long as they're getting the product, they'll be fine. Or they'll move on and buy another product that's similar in function and features to the, to the widget that you're selling. Those are the kind of things that I uh, kind of take a deep dive into. And then I look at, there are so many public databases that are available that some of them I subscribe to and, and I pay for those subscriptions. Some of them are publicly available, just freely available to everybody. That I actually reverse engineer the category, the competition, that product itself. What are people saying? What are the sentiments? What's the share of voice? All of that kind of stuff. I do take a, like the marketing approach to the business opportunity. And on the other side of it, I look at the technical debt that the client needs to pay in order to come up to speed. For example, they may have a Shopify site. They may not have invested well into it, to, but it, and the site doesn't really perform well. And they're leaving, even though they're driving traffic, the conversion rate is sub 1%, meaning that people are showing up. You're just not giving them a great customer service and, and you're not giving them a great experience on your site. So they're, they're not really transacting with your business. There are technical issues with any business that I, that I come across. You know, in, in most cases nowadays, you know, there has been a, a, a gigantic shift uh, from desktop uh, experience to mobile experience, for instance. And a lot of sites on the web, they are desktop first and maybe mobile optimized, maybe. And now, now because Google has made it a priority now, uh, if your site is not mobile optimized or mobile first, uh, you are getting deranked on search engine optimization, meaning that organic search traffic that you will get, it will be deranked. That's really bad because a, a good brand that has done a great job and, and, and done, done a great job with uh, organic search, they would get 20% of their revenue from organic search, meaning free search, 20%. Otherwise, they're paying that 20% in paid search and, and paid social. Or they're not getting the traffic. Or not getting the traffic at all. Right. That's the, uh, that's the issue. Yeah, good stuff uh, there. I, I think you call out about mobile um, first, which is, you know, it, we've been talking about mobile first, you know, for years, um, yet there's still many brands that uh, I come across when they're showing what a new homepage is going to look like. All they look at as a team is uh, what the homepage is, what, what the desktop version is going to look like. And then it's oftentimes responsive, you know, into mobile and, um, it is what it is. So, and, and typically those review sessions are on a gigantic screen, like an yeah. iMac. Yeah. And, and they're showing, and the, and the designer is so happy to be showing this incredible looking, beautiful site. Yeah. Except that 90% of the people are looking at an iPhone 11 and it's not going to In render. the United States, it's 82%. 82% of people are looking at uh, on an iPhone. 18% might be looking on Android and, and uh, similar devices. Yeah, it's incredible. We obviously are, uh, this, this last year has changed so much from a digital perspective and you're knee deep in digital. What's changed for you, either from the perspective of the kinds of customers, uh, clients that come to you or the questions that your clients ask? Is there a, a difference than it was pre-COVID? The big difference is uh, because I've been in this industry for such a long time, the things I was expecting to happen in 2035 got compressed into 2020, all of it. That's great news. 
bad news for businesses that did not overemphasize you know digital experience social experience e-commerce experience and also amazon for example they are the ones that got hurt the most because as soon as there was a lockdown in any area and if your shop was there you were done basically if the shops were not allowed to be open for three months that's it you know for a lot of businesses run month to month so if you were not whether you you own a a hair salon a tiny hair salon all the way to if you if you had a chain and you thought that your business was a retail business and not a multi-channel business you got hurt in a big way so that's that's one thing a, a lot of conversations got accelerated i i can tell you that at the beginning of COVID, starting in march i worked 18 hours a day because uh, that's how much of a demand i had on my time from my clients and i was taking on i was working on a lot of clients and helping them strategize quickly and mobilize very quickly to becoming an e-commerce company overnight like literally i had to do that with a lot of brands and and thank god their businesses were saved because of this transition and this quick type of a transition from being a traditional retailer and believe it or not we're in 2021 e-commerce has existed for 20 plus years now a lot of brands are still figuring out should we be doing e-commerce yeah you were supposed to be doing it 15 years ago not today let but let's speed up the conversation and get you going. That's one one thing that happened. The other thing, and I and, and I just looked at you know Amazon's uh, uh, revenue growth over quarter over quarter, Q3 of 2020, which we are, which we are in the depths of COVID and uh, pandemic and lockdown. That quarter beat out Q4 of 2019. Q3 tends to be a boring uh, <laughs> period. Because all of that tra transactions, all of it moved over. That quarter, Amazon's quarter was $96 billion compared to Q4 of 2019, uh, which was about 86 billion or something like that. With, with a boring quarter, they beat out their most exciting quarter <laughs> in the prior year. And that's how much uh, it, it grew. A lot of e-commerce companies, I mean, that's, Amazon is just an example of it. But you can look at Etsy and you could look at so many other businesses that they, they do e-commerce. It just skyrocketed during that time. What has happened as far as clients and the client mix and the conversations, the conversations related to should we be doing e-commerce actually died. It's more like we have to do e-commerce and we need to do it today. We need to do it today. Can you get us up and running as quickly as possible? And, and, and that's how pandemic, even though it, it's a horrible thing and, and there are so many people uh, losing their loved ones and so on, and especially what's going on in India currently. I, I, I'm from New York, so it, I can uh, I can empathize with them and sympathize with them. New York was going through uh, hell and high water when we were going through uh, that last year around around this time, basically. But but you know, and, and I pray for them uh, for 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 them. But the positive side of when when you when you have adversity like that, and and how adversity pushes uh, the consumers and people to take on new forms of interaction schools are no longer you don't have to wake up to go to school you're attending it through zoom or blackboard and there are so many online uh, schooling tools meetings i don't have to jump into a plane to to go and see somebody uh, in texas uh, i can have that meeting i can have a podcast or or a youtube uh, uh, you know channel and and my guests could be in sweden they could be in australia they could be in new zealand and it and now it has become the norm I don't have to explain that to them. I don't have to fly and to go sit down with them to 
look at their face and they can look at my face. I can see them through, through the computer. I, I think a lot of those behaviors that were foreign to people, even now, what I say is even grandmas know how, how to FaceTime now. Uh, so it, it has become part of our culture. You don't, it, the education part of it has become easier. Uh, things like you don't have to go shopping. I can get Instacart to deliver from Costco. I don't, I don't have to do that. I can go on Amazon and buy anything I, I, if I want to get anything that I need. And that time now belongs to me. If I need to order something from a, from a restaurant that's local to me, I can get on Uber Eats, Grubhub, Seamless, DoorDash, any of those kind of apps. And if I want ice cream from Chicago, and even though I live in New York, I can go on Gold Belly app. That's an app that allows you to buy ice cream, and it will be delivered to you next day, frozen, so that you can enjoy that ice cream from that Chicago ice cream parlor that you really like. So I, I think a lot of those things have now become the norm, and hopefully the adoption has even fastened up and, and makes my job easier. That means also a lot of companies that get into e-commerce uh, whether it's uh, you know going uh, direct to consumer with Shopify or BigCommerce or any of those kind of tools, or they're selling it on eBay or Amazon, because the consumers now know where to go to buy. Yeah, the world has gotten a lot smaller, um, that's for sure. Last question, which you know I, I have asked this of of many different people, and it, it's probably a long answer, but I'm going to ask you to give me kind of just a quick view. You know, we we talk a lot about attribution and media mix modeling, and it's it's complicated. Nobody seems to have the right answer. But kind of boil it down, especially for some of the clients that you have. They come to you, they want to try to grow to their business, but they say to you, geez, I have X dollars, I just don't know where to spend it. And I don't know how to measure its performance. What, what are the, you know, the two or three most important things that you tell them? Number one thing I, I, I tell every one of my clients is no consumer's journey is ever linear. You, you, you know that? 1975 marketing funnel that looks like this. I'm actually making a sign a of what a funnel, right. a V funnel. It starts with brand equity and awareness, and then somehow magically on the other side of it comes out a customer. Feels like a meat grinder. You know, that's what it looks like. In, in case of the, the social and digital age that we are living in, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, if you look at your, your behavior, you might see something on TV, like let's say given a certain age group, right? You're seeing something on TV. You don't jump on your, uh, on, on your computer to go or on a phone to go buy that thing or jump into your car and run and buy that thing from a, a local retail store. You don't, that never happens, right? You're hit there. You, see, you might see it in a magazine. Then let's say if you're digitally savvy, you're, you're picking up your Facebook, Instagram. You're hearing some comments. Then you go on Amazon. You search the product. You, you, you see the reviews, you see it's really, it would be something that you might be interested in. Then you go on YouTube and you want to find out if it's a technical product, right? Uh, how would you manage the changing of the battery or whatever it is, right? You would go through those journeys. To me, th those are bubbles of experience that exist. It's not a linear experience. You have to be, as a brand, what has changed from 1975 or the 1980s model of marketing to now, uh, 2021, is that Brands need to be omnipresent, digitally omnipresent in, in a world where the consumers exist. That's what needs to happen. If you, the brand is not omnipresent where the consumer is, it's a loss for the brand. Because, I mean, the consumer could be finding another brand that matches their specs and they'll buy that thing. 
in 1980s, it was the opposite, right? You had a retailer that represented brands, and then you would go in and, uh, as, a, as, a, as a consumer, go into that store, and, and you had a certain number of selections that were crafted by the retail owner, and you would buy that thing that, that was. The choices are now driven by consumers and their preferences and, and people that they trust, and it's not celebrities, it's not commercials. It's influencers, it's customer reviews, it's you and me writing that review on Amazon about that product, that why we like it. Or I have a gluten allergy and, I, I, and I, my, my review would say, this product is gluten-free and this is how I mix it with this and that and whatever to come up with my recipe. They, we are the heroes now. The consumers are the heroes and they're listening to other consumers. So the brand just needs to be omnipresent in that experience. So now talking about attribution and where should I put my money, the first thing I, w I prioritize is the traffic that's coming to your, let's say if it's a website, for example, the number one thing I prioritize is, there is a retargeting campaign. People are somehow showing up to your site, whether you're driving them through paid, they're coming through email, email newsletter you're sending out, or Google is helping you through organic traffic, or somebody uh, you know, linked to you because they like what you're presenting to them, whether it's product or service or blog article or whatever it is. You're getting that traffic. How are you retargeting where you can reach them through Facebook, through Google, through Pinterest, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever? Because all of those footprints of consumers exist on all of those platforms. Are you present where the consumers are, the consumers who interacted with you already? When it comes to acquisition, I do prioritize first Google and Facebook. Why? Because most of the traffic for consumers happens from there. And the third place tends to be from a shopping stand standpoint, Amazon. That's it. Those are the three platforms. Now, if you run out of those platforms, then you can go into secondary platforms or you can go secondary platforms because it's less competition there so that you can win on those platforms first so that you can grow your business. And then you can go with a bigger budget to go to uh, Google and Facebook. And, you know, and, and if you're playing on Amazon, you could do advertisement on Amazon too. But I would prioritize retargeting and remarketing first. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, well, look, we're out of time. Where can people uh, reach out to you on social media and uh, get some more words of wisdom? So the best place to go would be uh, my website, growthbysabir.com, uh, growthbysabir.com. And from there, you'll see my links to my YouTube channel where I have all of my uh, live shows that I do where I interview people they'll get it's a master class my show is a, is a master class in every topic uh, related to social digital and e-commerce so they can get go there and consume that i do have a blog on my site that they could read and subscribe to uh and they can follow me on instagram and, and twitter all of the links are on my website that's great something tells me you don't get a lot of sleep <laughs> no actually i i love sleeping i i <laughs> I, I, I make sure i get eight hours of sleep every night oh my god i can't remember the last time i got eight hours in one night Anyway, uh, Sabir, it was great to talk to you. Nice to see you uh, as well. Appreciate the conversations we've had prior today and, and certainly this one. So thanks for taking the time to talk to uh, me. Thank you, Mark, for having me on your show. And, and thank you for the audience for listening in. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Sabir Semerkant for coming in the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, mobile optimization is crucial. We've been talking about mobile first for a long time, but many brands are still focused at looking at their sites on desktop and large monitors. Look at your site the way customers do. 
Also, Google continues to penalize brands for websites that are not mobile optimized, at least as to how they define it. Number two, sometimes the non-sexy behind the scenes aspects of your business are the most important. You can have the best product and the best creative, but if you neglect the operational pieces of the business, today's customers will seek alternatives. You've heard it here before, the devil is in the details. And number three, a customer's journey to your site is not linear. If you're still thinking that customers only engage with you in one or two channels, you're wrong. They are on Google, on many of the social channels, they get your emails and mobile messages. You have to assume that there are many touch points before and during their decision-making process. Be certain you can track that journey and use the details to adjust your media mix. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, once again, the devil is in the details. Yeah.